0: And now, with Sound Investing, here's Paul Merriman. I think some of the most important work that I do is presenting information about the past. By the way, it's easy to know about the past, impossible to know about the future, but sharing information from the past that will help people make better investment decisions. I do that with showing as best I know how to combine different equity asset classes, and I do that with the ultimate buy and hold strategy, and then I show people how to combine that particular group of equity asset classes along with different amounts of fixed income to address risk and peace of mind. Uh, and hopefully show somebody how uh, they could build a portfolio and have enough to retire. And then finally, I show distribution tables. In fact, in the last podcast, I spent almost an hour talking about the concept of fixed distributions. Distributions for people who have not over-saved, but who have saved enough, and the the goal is to find how much money that is, and what distribution rate one may take, and of course because we're not over-saving, you've got to make sure that each year you can adjust for whatever inflation is experienced. Now, I promise this week's podcast will not be that long, but I do encourage anybody who's listening to this one, but they haven't heard that one, to go take the time to go through it, because I think it will make this presentation so much more meaningful. So before I get into the distribution strategy, I want to make some a point that I think is uh, Is extremely important. In fact, it may be the most important thing that I have to share in helping people with their investments. And really, it's all about one word. And you may remember, those of you who are old enough, a movie called The Graduate. Uh, Dustin Hoffman was one of the stars. He was a young kid, kind of caught in between his youth, and uh, the necessity of growing up. And he's pondering his future. And by the way, while he's pondering, he's spending most of his time floating uh, in his wealthy parents' pool. And there's a a family gathering, friends and family. And a friend uh, of the parents takes Dustin aside to tell him what he should be focused on for his future. And he said, it's one word, plastics. Now, at that point in time, 1967, when that movie was made, uh, I can understand why that one word would be plastics. Uh, today it would probably be something very different than plastics, but one word meant a lot at that moment in time. Well, I think there's one word It has to do with you being successful and doing it in a way that will give you the best unit of return per unit of risk, and that single word that has to do with your future success is defense, because I do believe that successful investing is about 99.9% defense, and yet the industry often thinks in terms of offense. And so as we go into this discussion today, the final discussion on distributions, I'm going to show you two more defensive steps that that you can take. Now, before I get to those two, let me make sure you get this idea of why defense is so important. It is true that you could put all of your 401k investments into the company you work for. There's a whole bunch of reasons why uh, that is not a good idea, but um, it all really has to do with the possibility that that company will fail, failing you both as an employee and failing you as an investor. And in a couple of weeks, I'm going to uh, share some information that I think is going to shock you as to how few companies uh, end up being successful uh, as an investment. Give me two weeks and I'll give it to you. I think you'll enjoy it. But what do we know about owning a 1,000 stocks instead of one? It's defensive. And yet it may be that the odds are you're going to make more money And really, it looks like the probabilities are much higher that you'll make more money owning a 1,000 companies than owning one. We also know that there are some advantages to combining asset classes, different equity asset classes, along with numbers of asset classes in a particular industry or a particular country. And we also know it's defensive when we invest in mutual funds that have very, very low fees and low turnover. And, of course, I'm talking about index funds because those represent all of these advantages of massive diversification, low expenses, low turnover, and something that most of us investors like, and that's control in that we know what asset classes we are getting. So those are, and there are more defensive things uh, that that we can do, certainly when we minimize taxes and invest that money in a 401k, in fact, even better, a Roth 401k, where you have the chance to not only compound your investments for the rest of your your working life tax-free, but then when you take the money out, at least with, today's tax regulations, the distributions will be tax-free. And, oh, by the way, don't forget bonds and adding the bonds or fixed income to the portfolio uh, to protect against the downside, sufficient to keep it within your risk tolerance. Now, in that last podcast where I talked about fixed distributions, we showed some uh, big differences in terms of how long the money was lo- likely to last and of course your your first priority is to make it last for a lifetime and the second maybe is to leave something for those that follow you but it turned out uh, that while 3 and 4% plus inflation would not likely run out of money before you run out of life once you start taking 5% out or even worse 6% out and then you add inflation to it it was too offense too much offense and uh, and so i encouraged investors to have enough t- when they retire to be able to live off of somewhere between 3 and 4%. Now, again, that is addressing the people who want to save with enough. And there's any number of reasons why people may not want to keep working once they have enough. They might include something like they don't like their job. Or maybe it's that they want to do something else, that is important to them that just simply doesn't produce any income, or maybe a a small amount of income, or maybe it's a health problem. Or it might even be the belief, and I've run into this many times, where somebody may be healthy enough, but they come from a family where the parents and the grandparents just didn't live very long compared to what others were living on average. So for those who are willing to keep working to in essence save more than enough, this is a much bigger deal uh, than uh, than than most people uh, would understand, because things can go wrong. Your health can go wrong, and you need more money than expected, or Maybe in many cases, uh, you thought you were going to be able to work part-time, but then you find out you can't work part-time. So I want to talk about saving more than enough. I mean more than enough to meet whatever that minimal amount of uh, return is. Let's go back to last, last podcast where we talked about taking out 4% of the original amount and we assumed the invested amount was a million dollars, and we assumed then that you could live on $40,000, and that amount had to to be adjusted each year for inflation in order to have what you want out of life. Now, sure, things happen, and you have to adjust your lifestyle to the things that happen, but for planning purposes, it was a 4% or $40,000 a year Income or more due to future inflation. Now, I think I should stop at this point. I should have mentioned this in the beginning. I am going to be referring to some tables, and um, I, I think for this to be most meaningful, uh, and there'll only be a few tables compared to last time, but if you go to uh, Best Advice, Uh, on our website, Uh, there will be a a portion on distributions and you'll see the tables that you download for the the flexible distribution presentation. That's what this one is about. Now, there'll also be a link uh, along with the podcast information that you may have gone to uh, in order to download this in the first place i will be referring to those tables so let's go back to this assumption that you do need $40,000 doesn't matter how much money you might have you need 40 which means if you've only got $400,000 saved it's probably too early to retire you probably have to wait until you have a million instead of 400,000 because a, a 10% distribution rate is a fairly quick path to being broke, at least based on history. Now, let's assume for the sake of this discussion that instead of saving a million dollars, you saved two million dollars. But let's also assume that uh, in uh, that uh, whatever amount you have, you're going to take out that 4% just as the person who has a million dollars. Well, you can see what immediately happens. You have a cost of living of 40000 but because you've oversaved 4% of $2 million is $80,000, you are getting twice as much to take out of the portfolio as what the person who just saved enough. Now, this is a huge difference. And you can see what the difference is here. Not only do you get to have more money to spend, but you also can take a hit, maybe even a major hit in the market, and that you would be able to adjust. Now, let's just assume that uh, you were a 50-50 strategy, having stocks and having bonds, and you went through a terrible, terrible period before the market turned around, that you were down 25%. can happen. It can happen. I should say that in a different way. It has happened. And it can happen again. So here's the bottom line. You have this uh, uh, this $2 million with the protection of being able to accept a, a major loss without having to take a cut in pay if your pay is 4% of whatever you have left, at the let's say, at the beginning of each year. So 4% of a million and a half would still be $60,000, more to live on and enjoy than the person who put in the million. And oh, by the way, um, uh, they likely have a problem too because their portfolio uh, could be down or would be down at that point. So I, 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 that oversaving is a huge defensive step. And I've seen it. It's very similar in the peace of mind that it generates, creates as the people who have pensions. I have for years asked for a show of hands of how many people have a pension in in uh, uh, in retirement. And here in the Seattle, in the Pacific Northwest area, there are a lot of people worked for Boeing and, and other major companies or the government, and they do have a pension. And I asked them about how much peace of mind that gives them, knowing that check is coming in every month, regardless of what the market's doing. And without exception, I have never had anybody say that it wasn't something that gave them a lot of peace of mind. And I think it's the same thing with oversaving. The problem with oversaving is that it means you probably had to sacrifice something in order to have all that money. Maybe you didn't travel as lavishly as others. And maybe you didn't send your kids to Harvard or Yale and pay all the expenses. And maybe, uh, maybe you let your kids go to any school they wanted to in the United States instead of being able to stay in state and probably get as good an education. But the child wanted to get out and see the world. And as parents, most of us are are suckers. You can count me in on that. So this is a big defensive step. Now, there's one. Final defensive step. I think of all the different things that I've asked people to do uh, in, in terms of, uh, of acting defensively to put a portfolio together. Now what I'd like you to consider is using a defensive strategy in how you take your distributions. And I think you're going to be amazed at the power of this particular defensive step. Instead of taking distributions on a fixed basis, as we did in the last podcast, because you've oversaved, I want you to consider taking your distributions on a flexible basis. You see, if your cost of living is 40000 but you have the ability to take 80000 out, you don't have to worry about uh, inflation being uh, added into your, uh, the amount of the distribution. So if you were just to take a set amount out, percentage-wise, each year, regardless of whether the market went up or went down, It would mean that in in, in good markets, profitable markets, you'd be able to take out more, and when the market declines, you will take out less. But remember, you're already taking out way more than you really need to. And if by doing that, it would not only allow you to be defensive in terms of reducing your distributions, it would also allow you to take out bigger percentage distributions. In fact, my wife and I use this variable or flexible distribution strategy in our own life. And the first week of each year, we take out 5% of our retirement pool to live on for the next year. By the way... Uh, to live on, uh, as well as uh, to uh, is to share with others, whether that be children or charities, and so by doing it on a defensive basis, taking a cut in pay if the market goes down, taking an increase in pay if the market goes up, it really changes the outcome so much. And now I want to go to those tables that uh, hopefully you have downloaded. And I want to talk about a a few of them. And I want to, as a matter of fact, I've got a couple of, I think, very important points that I want to make. First of all, I want to make sure that you understand uh, the risk we're talking about in taking too much money out on a fixed basis. I want to go back to table two and it's one of the lists that you would have printed out to go along with this particular podcast, Table 2, which is about using the S&P 500 only as the equity portion of the portfolio and uh, taking out $40,000, and then we're, of course, adjusting it for inflation. Now, I want you to notice that in Table Two, if you were 50-50 stocks and bonds, which happens to be what my wife and I are, um, you would notice that you started with a million dollars in 1970, and the money lasted, as you can see, all the way to the bottom of the page, and there was $2.5 million left over for your heirs, and by the way, if you go over to the right side at the bottom of the page, you will see the total distributions you took out, $6,894,807. Now, that was with a 50-50, that 50% equity is the S&P 500, and the other 50% in bonds. Now, it's important to note that that was a relatively high return over that long period of time because bonds did so well and, uh, and 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 stocks did just fine even though they went through three horrific bear markets where investors lost over half of their equity value still over the whole period it was a 9% overall A compound rate of return. Now there was rebalancing on an annual basis. Now here's then uh, the next thing I want you to see, and again nine percent. Got to remember that number. If we go over to another table that I have in that uh, pile that you printed out, I hope you will go to table eleven. Table eleven is a portfolio that took out 40,000 just like the one we looked at with the S&P but instead of the stocks being represented only by the S&P 500 it was other asset classes as well: S&P 500, large value, small blend, small value, REITs, international, large blend, international, large value, international small value, international small blend, and emerging markets. It's all in there. And what we know, if for those of you who might have might remember the fine-tuning table, is the internal risk, the standard deviation. Was virtually the same as the uh, as the S and P uh, 500. Now, what do we see here? We see here that it also paid out uh, the six million dollars, almost seven. But notice at the bottom of the page, instead of two point five million, it's twenty four million. Now, I know that seems unbelievable, particularly when the return was the same nine percent. And if you don't understand how that can happen, just understand that it's the sequence of returns that means so much. Uh, there were some fairly long periods of time that the S and P 500 struggled badly. While other equity asset classes did well. For example, from 2000 to 2009, if you were broadly diversified, the return was probably around 8%. If you were only in the S&P 500, it was a loss of about 1% a year. But at the end of the 47 years, it's hard to believe that with the same compound rate of return, there could be that much difference in what you had left for others. It didn't change how much you took out, by the way. In both cases, you took out the $6,894,000. So I wanted to make that point before I go on. Now let's look at at the table 7. Because we, we oh well, excuse me, let's go to table three for a second. Because table three is where instead of taking out $40,000 on a fixed basis, we took out $50,000 and adjusted it for inflation. Now, notice that if all the distributions had been made, At the bottom of the page, you can see the total distributions would have been $8,618,509. That's the good news. Lots of money to spend and enjoy. The bad news is is that in every every case, every combination of the S&P 500 and bonds, you would have run out of money. By about 1994, I think was uh, the best case, and you're moving in with your children, or you're doing something. You're certainly adjusting your lifestyle. But let me show you something that I—it just feels like magic, and it's—it it creates, I think, so much hope. I want you to go to table seven. Now, table seven looks different because. You don't pay out exactly the same to everybody across the, across the table because what we're going to do is at the beginning of each year going to take out five percent of whatever the portfolio's worth. Let's look at the S P 500. 50-50 stocks and bonds. What you'll notice is the column makes it to the bottom of the page. And and there's money left over for children. Five million instead of being dead broke in about 1994, it continues to pay out 155,000 next year, then 187, then 200, then 228. And yet you started by taking out that five percent. But when the market went down you took out 5% of less. You can even see in 1975, the payout was only 44661 for the 50-50 strategy. See, you had to be have the ability to cut back, but remember, if you were doing this with twice as much money and your cost of living, for the sake of discussion, was 50 and you started with 2 million instead of 1 okay you took a cut and pay but you still got a payout of 5% of the reduced number which would have been a payout of two times 44,000 so your defense here is the oversaving and yes it lasted to the bottom of the page now Remember, it was about $8.6 million that you would have gotten paid out if it had made it to the bottom of the page. Uh, but instead, the payout, according to the 50-50 strategy, was $7.2 million. Okay, you didn't have as much to spend as you would have had you been able to maintain that aggressive $50,000 plus inflation, but you did leave $5 million to heirs, which before you not only left them nothing, but you probably became a financial burden to them. So this defensive strategy of taking a a percentage of what's left over, I just think it's it's an amazingly peaceful way to have that money working for you. Now, I want to look at one more table. Um, I I think after having seen the huge difference between the 50-50 with the S&P and the worldwide portfolio, you would expect there to be a huge difference here, but it didn't work out that way. This is the uh, the, the 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 nature of how much money we live in leave in the pool to work for us, as opposed to having been forced to take it out early in the period. That's probably a little confusing, but let me just show you. In Table fifty-two, this is what we call the moderate worldwide f- flexible distribution schedule. The flexible here is a 5% distribution at the start of each year. Now notice in the 50-50 the total payouts from 1970 through 2016 were almost 8.2 million dollars. So that was significantly bigger payout uh, than you would have gotten with the S&P 500 only. And the amount left to the family was about the same, $5.2 million dollars. So as you change the strategies and when you access the money and how much you access the money and whether you access the money regardless of what the market's doing or you adjust, it changes everything. It's the same 9% return over that period of time for both the S&P 500 and the fifty-fifty strategy. And you can see that by if you were 60 40, and by the way, if you have oversaved by let's say a hundred percent and you had two million instead of one, if you had oversaved, you could not only not only would you have the ability to take out five percent instead of four but you would have the ability to go to a 60/40 instead of a 50/50. Now my wife and I have chosen not to do that because in part of the portfolio where we are invested not for our retirement but for things we want to leave after we're gone um we're, we're more aggressive there, so we're not so aggressive in what is the base of our annual income. But look what happens when you go to sixty forty. Instead of having distributions of 8.2 million, distributions of 9.5. Big deal. Instead of leaving 5.2 to family members or charities, 6.5. So it does make a big difference. Now let me highlight that this is a very long period of time. And for those who only think they have, in fact, I had lunch with an old friend yesterday. He said, you know, I'm planning for 15 years. Well, you could actually look at 15-year periods here if you wanted, because you could go from 1970 to 1984 and see how you would have done. You could go from 1975 to 1999 and see how you would have done. You can look at lots of, of um, 15-year periods and see how this strategy would have held up. But the bottom line is it's defense, defense, defense at every level that I know. In fact, The reason I use the start of the year as the distribution, which I could do it monthly, I could do it at the end of the year, but by starting at the first of the year, the defense is that we've got the money put aside. We don't have any emotional hang-ups about what the market is doing day-to-day or month-to-month in terms of taking money out. It comes out one time, the emotion is done, Put away. Again, that's a defense against some of the emotional challenges that we investors have. And then I want to add one more big advantage. I'm a saver. I'm frugal. i can I can admit without without hesitation that my wife has been instrumental in getting me to be less frugal. And enjoying the life savings more, knowing that the kids and the charities will have a little less, but uh, uh, she helped. But there's something else that helped, and that is that when somebody likes to spend and somebody likes to save, and the market starts going down, there is a little fear that can creep in to that trust they have in the and mar- in the money being there to to support them for the rest of their life. And so, by having this defensive strategy, I know with an agreement from my wife, who really would enjoy spending more every year. Now, that by the way, she's in the cat bird's seat because. The market goes up two out of three years historically, so she's going to have more to spend most of the time, but I am going to have some level of peace of mind knowing that by us being defensive, we're already taking out more than we need, but being defensive by taking out a percentage that it means we'll take out less in the bad times, more in the good times, and there is no question that we that we have to take out more in order to get by. We don't because we over saved. So I hope that's helpful. And by the way, I've I've got these tables on on these flexible distributions, not just for the S and P five hundred, uh, not just for the. 5% payouts i've got it for 3 4 5 and 6 and you'll be happy to know that you can if you've oversaved enough you can take out 6% and enjoy it and not have to worry about going broke now i've also done it for 5050 us international with the worldwide strategy that uh, i've written so much about uh, but we've also done it for 70 30 So you can see how would you have fared, whether, by the way, it's fixed or variable, flexible, how would you have fared with 70% U.S., 30% fixed income? And finally, I did a set of 50-50 all-value and 70-30 U.S. international all value. And I'm not doing that because I think when you, when you see the numbers, many people my age are going to say, whoa, maybe I should be considering doing this. Uh, what I believe is that that strategy is probably going to be acceptable for people who are starting their portfolio in their 20s now. And they live with an all-value equity portion uh, for uh, a major part of their portfolio. And if they do that for 20, 30, 40 years and live through some terrible bear markets with all value uh, versus a combination of value and growth, um, I think they'll be comfortable with it. And it won't seem like a radical thing to do. But um, the tables are there for you to review. Uh, What we haven't done, and we will do, uh, I think before the year is up, we haven't done an all U.S. with a combination of large and small value and large and small blend in the equity portion of the portfolio. We'll do that. I think many of you will find that uh, interesting, Uh, certainly better than having an all S&P 500, uh, but likely not as safe as having a worldwide diversified portfolio. Well, as always, I hope it helps, and uh, I hope if you're working with an advisor that you'll Uh, Share these tables with them and see if it should have any impact on what you're doing uh, in your portfolio. Um, You know where to get a hold of me, Paul, at paulmerriman.com. I'm sure that I'm going to get some questions on the fixed and the flexible distribution tables. Uh, I would appreciate getting them soon so I can put together a a Q&A that addresses uh, uh, whatever you all come up with. That isn't quite clear enough for you. Thanks for listening. Please share this with others if you think it will be helpful.